I'm Julie Hyde, and I believe you can't be a leader of others until you are a leader of self. It all starts with leading you. So if you are ready to be the best leader that you can be, you're in the right place. I'll be chatting to a diverse range of leaders who will spill the beans on their leadership, how they changed the game, insights into their mindset, and how they built the courage and resilience to be a modern leader with impact. Let's get into it. With me today is the incredible Liz Courtney. Now, for more than a decade, award-winning social entrepreneur and documentary maker Liz has built a global multimedia platform to educate and mobilize online communities for social and environmental change. A passionate storyteller, Liz uses her 20-plus years' experience in brand strategy and communication to lead the narrative on social change in the climate sector with innovation, digital and experiential content to inform community, government and policy planning on long-term solutions in high-risk regions. Now, she's been awarded 100 Women of Influence, inducted into Australian Business Women's Hall of Fame. And in 2018, Liz delivered her first TEDx talk on lateral thinking for climate solutions and now sits on boards for Women for Change, the National Foundation for Australian Women and Youth for Planet. And that is only some of what this incredible woman is leading and has achieved. So welcome, Liz. Thank you, Julie. And it's so great to be with you. So... Liz, let's jump into it and love to ask you, if you were the leader of the world for a day, what would you change and why? Wow, if I could only do one thing. If I was world leader for a day, I would like to pass a decree that would create a new framework that all countries would have to set aside, which would be a new framework for climate change and and future planning, that no matter what government came into play, that structure would be set and could not be changed. And the reason I would do that is because we are looking at a long-term tail on this climate scenario Mm. and we don't actually have a structure around the world that is allowing us to plan adequately. We need to be making long-term decisions now that probably won't be favourable in our short-term three, four-year governments. But we need to make those decisions, right, because the climate's a slow-moving system and we need to be planning for the next 100 years. But every time we have governments that come in for only four years, we're just not able to make those changes. And I think we owe it to the generations to come to be making those brave, sometimes not favourable decisions now, but in 20 or 30 years, people will say, wow, they were so amazing. They had that insight to make these long-term decisions. So if I could come in and change things for a day, I would set up long-term planning structures in countries. Absolutely. I think you've really addressed one of the biggest problems across the world, which is, you know, with the change of government comes change of policies. And you're so right so having that as a as a blueprint, as if you like, across the world would make such a huge difference. Yeah. I don't think people really think about how much of a difference it would make 
Mm. But, you know, when governments come in, they want to be popular for the first one or yep. two years. They do things, then they have to come back and be popular again for the next elections. Yeah. But the system that the world operates on, the climate system, it doesn't work that way. And mm. we work in a 30-year lag. So some people listening mightn't realise, but what we're uh, impacting us now, that actually happened 30 years ago. And yeah. so this long-term moving system actually needs long-term planning. And at the moment, we're just not doing the planning structure to meet the problems and the solutions. We have mm -hmm. some governments that are, and I have to say in Singapore, they're doing an amazing job of planning for the future. They're making long-term plans that are going to be for the next 100 years. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't believe that many countries are actually in a position to be able to make those long-term plans and mm. also have the the voice of the people understanding why they're making those long-term yeah. plans and to be supportive of them, right? Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. So I want to take you back a little bit and I'd love you to share your game-changing decision, which was when you traded your stilettos for your snow boots. Yeah. And... Which is such a, a massive change for you and really set you on a very different path. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how it came okay. about? And I'm so glad because this is a podcast. So I can actually say I'm in my sort of spotty gear today. So, <laughs> <laughs> so for anyone listening, you can have a laugh with me. But um, yeah, no, I, I spent 20 years as a, you know, a bit of a corporate queen and I really loved my high heels and my corporate outfits and all the rest of it that came with it. But it was, um, you know, I, I spent time building companies and we sold a company to Leo Bennett's in the US. And I thought at that time I was having my first son, Dakota, love you. And I thought I'd be back in three or four months, right? You know, you don't know, do you, when you're having your first one? And then I, mm. I had Dakota and I was like, I'm not sure if this is, do I want to go back to this straight away? And it was kind of at that change of a point, I also had always been passionate about film and my poor husband got dragged to see at least three films a week, but I'd never worked out how to quite make the step stones to get to that other part of, of me that I really wanted to do. But I decided to give it a go and I set up a small production company and one or two things happened. I went to a lecture, I met someone, I thought he was like the Indiana Jones of the art world. I got my first gig with the ABC doing Sculpture by the Sea. I don't know how I made that production because, to be very honest, I actually don't even know how I went to broadcast. What I know now and what I knew then are totally different things, yeah. right? But I found my way and a few things fell in my lap and it was then a chance to go to Antarctica to direct a documentary and it was on climate change and it was 40 teenagers. It was United Nations Year of Youth. And I remember that moment when I, I had the opportunity and I was saying to the kids at the dinner table, who were all quite young at that age, I don't think I'm going to go. It's too long. You're too young. I don't want to leave you for so long. And they would just say to me, are you crazy? This is like the best, best opportunity in the world. And I think I'd watched that film, A Perfect Storm. If anyone listening has seen it, it's truly horrific. This person's in a boat on these high waves. <laughs> 
I kind of pictured myself, right? I'm a Drake passage. I'm getting tossed around. I'm like, I can't do it. I woke up the next day and I went, oh, my God, you're so like you're being driven by fear, right? Mm. Oh, no, come on, you can do better. And I thought, you know, like if you always define your life through fear, then you never know what you don't know. And so I said, yep, I'm going to do it. And um, I found myself on a ship on a, on a Russian icebreaker <laughs> going to Antarctica. And that's where my stilettos got dumped and my sleeve came out. Unbelievable. <laughs> and it was the people that you were with at that time that is, is that sort of what made you think, wow, I need to take this I love the way you say that you communicate about the climate. Yeah. Um, is that what ignited your, your passion for it? Yeah, I think there were a few things, right? One was I don't think you can spend three and a half weeks with 40 teenagers and not get your ear chewed off a bit, you know, and to see the world through their eyes and mm. hear them asking the questions like, but this is our future, Why you're an adult, why aren't adults doing more to protect our future why are you do, doing things to our planet? Why aren't we making changes? Why, aren't, why is policy not changing? And so I heard all of that, but I also felt like I went to another planet. Uh, anyone who's listening who's been to Antarctica will yeah. probably resonate with the fact that I never thought a place like that existed at all on this planet. And it's so majestic. It's so monolithically big. It's it's just crazy the scope and the size of Antarctica and it's peaceful and there are no mobile phones there's no no billboards actually one of the kids who came from the UK said but there's there's no big signs here and we can't use our mobile phones like what's going on and it was like for them culture shock and for me it was like life changing experience life changing interaction with young people, life-changing seeing the world differently through the eyes of scientists who are with us. And when you machinate all that together, I actually think it's really damn hard to come back not changed. And it made me think very hard about what I felt my responsibility was as a human being. What is my responsibility? Where can I add value? Where can I do something that's going to actually make a tiny bit of change? And there's so much to do, right? And the time that we have to do it is quite minimal. Many of us who have got kids, we, we can't stop to think about what are we doing for them and what sort of world are we leaving for them and other generations. So I think I was fueled by all of that when I came back to have a really damn good think about how I wanted to live the next bit of my life. Mm, gosh, that would have been just an amazing, amazing experience. And as you say, you had the younger generation with you. You've got the eyes of the scientists there. It just would have been so eye-opening for you. And like you say, it's encouraged you to think differently. And one thing I absolutely love is your message about the one thing that we can do differently and it's really challenging everyone to take ownership of just changing one thing that will make a difference to our planet. Can you expand a bit on that for me? Two things I would say to that was firstly 
Antarctica is very much also in the heart. So when you go there, you have an experience that I feel really engages your heart with, with the earth and with nature. And it's something very hard to put into words, but you have that experience and you can't wipe it from your memory. It's there and it's ingrained in you. And I know that the young people, when they came back, they all, we were all messaging each other. And the first day I got back, I actually couldn't stay in the city. I had to get in the car. I couldn't put the radio on for a week. Kids had to go to school without no music. Oh my God, that was like, mum wouldn't do it. I had to go and sit in the country and I had to sort of sensitize myself back into the city. I can't imagine what it's like for astronauts to spend, you know, a few weeks in space and come back yeah. to like everything on the planet, right? But that was just an interesting little story. But I did come back and think, what can we all do? And I looked at where we were using our energies as a family and, and how we were using the energy and I, we rewired our lights so that we have a lower load as far as lights go. The big thing that was using a lot of energy in our house, because we had three very active, sporty kids, was our dryer. And I actually announced to the whole family, we're disconnecting the dryer. What? No, you can't, you got to be joking. And I'm like, no, we're disconnecting it. This is how it's going to be. And they're like, oh, my God. You know, like I put everything had to go in the washer nine o'clock at night and then I would hang it out to dry and it was mostly dry in the morning and so that was a small behavioral change we made the second thing I did was I said to everyone the family I said we're going to have one night a week where we're going to call it eat the fridge so I don't mind what it is but I'm not throwing away food we're going to eat what's in the fridge because up to 40 percent of everything that we put in our shopping trolley we throw out right and food waste, food security, thats a it's a very big issue globally. And so we do eat the fridge, which was one night a week, was another one. The kids did assignments at school and I used to find stickers under the shower, which says three-minute shower, and they put stickers all around the house. And I was like, okay, this is like just having some behavioral change and we discussed it at the table. And I think what I encourage everyone to do is is – to not think that they can't be part of the solution, right? We actually can be part of the solution and we can't afford to just wait for policy change. We can't afford to wait for businesses to change. We all have to be part of the solution. So we need to look around in our everyday life and say, where can we lighten the load of the energy that we're using as a, as a first step? Or where can we lighten the load so that we're not we're recycling clothes, we're eating the food that's in the fridge, we're not throwing things away, don't use a dryer when you know you can actually just put that extra five minutes into putting it on a drying rack and let it dry in the sun or let it dry indoors. You might think they're little things, but if everybody starts to do little things, it only takes about 5% of our behavioural change to actually all come together to make a change. I love that. Really powerful because... As you say, it's a real behavioural change and I love the fact that you discussed it as a family. It's like, hey, we're all going to do this. There might have been a bit of shock with the dryer, but obviously you've adapted to that change and your change will make a, a, a difference. And I think those ideas that, that disconnect the dryer, that eat the fridge, I love that and it's it's just awful that 40% food is thrown out. Like that's 
our shopping trolleys. That's a bit scary. And recycling clothes. It's all just thinking differently about what we can do. Like you say, like the one thing, but if you do lots of one things, that's <laughs> that's even better. It is because actually Australia has the second largest landfill of fashion items or clothes per capita in the world. And I found that was quite a, a worrying statistic. Yeah. So a couple of mums, we actually got together and created the Sustainable Sports Program. And we basically work with clubs and every year we recycle. We collect, you know, boots, shin pads, tops, shirts that aren't being used. And, you know, as, as children are growing, right, the feet just keep growing. You have to go and buy one or two pairs a year, which is crazy. I don't think they always use the life of a shoe, a runner or a soccer boot or a football boot. But we work with a lot of the Indigenous youth and mental health programs and we recycle a lot of gear. We've got about 20,000 players in so far in, in the program and that gets a second life. It goes out to areas where the flood victims were because their families couldn't afford to buy new sporting gear for them, where the fires were, in Indigenous areas where they're actually really pushing sport as a great way to talk about life and mental health. And I think there are just ways that we can actually find we can recycle many things. And, you know, there was a young scientist I met recently in Singapore and she said her mission is to change the word waste to resource. And in the future, we won't ever have waste. We'll have a closed loop, full loop system where waste is now only seen by the next generation as a resource. What do we do with it? So we are resourceful in everything that we have. And I love that motto. Absolutely. That just it makes such a difference thinking about things so differently. And as a full cycle, as you say, things don't need to be thrown out. Mm. Is there one thing you could think you would do differently? Well, I already don't use the dryer. So I am someone who hangs my clothes out and lets them dry. And you're right, they do dry pretty much overnight. So I can absolutely endorse what you're saying there. I'm thinking eat the fridge is something that I can do better. Often I do throw out things where I, I could have thought differently about what I can do with what's in there. Yeah. So I like that eat the fridge concept. It's a fun one that the family can do together yes. as well. You can really think about what's left and what you can create with it. If there's something I've learned from my cancer diagnosis, it's that life is short and we all have a choice about how we live and lead. When life throws you lemons, you crack open the GNT. My inspiring keynote designed for leaders and those who know that we are all leaders. The Day My Life Changed Forever, How to Be the Leader of Your Own Life has been described as life-changing, both personally and professionally. And I am now delivering this presentation to corporations, associations, and teams across Australia. If this is something that interests you, you can find out more via my website, juliehyde.com.au. One thing that I really took away is how you described that we're in the slow boil and we're not noticing exactly what's going on and therefore we're not reacting fast enough or taking proactive action. Did you want to talk a little bit about that too? It's just something that really hit me. I often ask people, as I say, when was the last time you looked up into the sky 
really think about it and you remember that you're living on a planet and it's a planet that is actually moving around a solar system. And in our solar system, it is the only habitable planet that we know of. And it's habitable because we have this amazing thin blue line in our, in our atmosphere that actually keeps the planet safe from solar radiation and from the outside space. So every day at the moment, everything that we're doing is actually destroying that precious atmosphere that protects us and allows us to have life on the planet. And, and that works in with what creates it. And it's the oceans and the atmosphere that work together to create this life that we have. 75% of the world is oceans. And so I think if everybody could just go and stand outside and look up and remember that we are on a planet that's moving around the sun, we, we need everything within the climate and the system to work together. So that's the sort of the first thing that I would say everybody needs to have that memory, right, to remember, and which I don't think everybody does. The second thing I would say is that the climate, because it is a slow-moving system, everything is changing, and it's around the fringes of the system that are changing the fastest. And I have had a great privilege to, to go across the Arctic Circle to dog sled and film up there, I've just come back from being in Antarctica filming down there. Um, and where you are, you know, I was very lucky to live in the Amazon rainforest for a month to travel across the Arctic where the permafrost is being released. And you see and you work with the scientists and you hear them talking about how the different elements of the system are changing very quickly. And so I have been to the places where they're changing dramatically and very fast. We tend to live in cities where we don't see that on a day-to-day basis. And I think it's much harder for us to have these conversations about the fact the system's changing. And, you know, some people might say, well, why care? But the climate has been a very stable system. And the climate system is like, um, it's like, you know, the system that, that drives your car. It's made up of lots of different hoses and pipes and things that make it all work together. But when you start to disconnect some of those or alter them, it means your car would, would perform differently. And many of you might think it's not safe to drive anymore, but um, the system is changing. And because we can't really see it every day or the increments of change are not hard-hitting to see us in the face, I feel that we we struggle to really come to terms with what it means when we say the climate and the system is changing. And so as a climate communicator, I'm trying to work really hard to bring to life the stories where the system is changing quickly and to explain how that's impacting the rest of us and the rest of the system. That's such a great way to explain it. And, you know, as I said to you when we spoke, I I look at this guy a lot, but I don't look at it in that way and that's really changed my paradigm in terms of how I look at the sky and just think about it differently because you're right I I don't necessarily notice what's happening around me and I take responsibility in that I I definitely don't do enough 
So, you know, for many of us who live, we're very lucky living in Australia. Mm. But for people who, say, are living in India, when I was filming there, I met with Indian farmers. And I thought I was meeting with three or four, but literally a 100 came. And they sat in a circle and they had put their best whites on. And some of them were crying. And they just said, we need you to tell our story because we are the farmers and our lives are changing and the monsoons are changing and we don't know when to put the crops in the ground anymore. And when it rains, the rain is so hard that all the topsoil is washed away into the river and we only have enough money to plant one crop every year and if we lose that, we have no money and we can't feed our family and we can't produce rice. And that was just a very small story. And when I was in Greenland, I was filming... Inuit hunters and through an interpreter he told me that he didn't know what he'd done to upset mother earth and I was listening to this story it was breaking my heart and he felt that he was responsible and I'm like they're not responsible but they're the ones that are being impacted and he had to lose 80 of his dogs because he had no food for them because the seals weren't coming and he had no food the fish weren't coming and in Africa, over 90% of people in Africa are subsistent farmers. So if it doesn't rain, they can't grow crops and they starve. So there are many places on the planet that are being very hardly impacted by the fact that the climate system is becoming unstable. And that means it's going to be hotter and it's going to be colder. We're going to have droughts and we're going to have floods. So I think if people can take away their understanding that the climate's a system and it's been very stable for the last, you know, 10,000 years. But we're at 420 parts per million now in CO2 in the atmosphere and the safe operating system for the planet is around 280 to 300. So we're way above uncharted territory of knowing how the climate as a system is going to keep unstabilizing itself or becoming unhinged and that affects all people on the planet differently and those that are better set up to be able to manage it are often the ones that aren't as affected as the ones that really rely on nature to support and nurture them. Mm, absolutely and that's the human aspect and of course then there's the all the animals that are impacted by it and how it's changing their environment and how they can survive as well. Um, yes, it's a big so, story. Biodiversity yeah. on the planet at the moment, I think it's the Oxford University scholars are saying that by the end of the century, we will lose 60% of the biodiversity on the planet and we're aiming at least for a three-degree increase by the end of the century. So the fastest the planet's ever heated up, my understanding, is around four degrees over 5,000 years. And we're going to do around possibly three degrees in 100 years. So it, it just means that nature does not have the ability mm. to adapt as fast as it needs to adapt. And there will be winners and losers, but we're definitely needing to act much faster than we currently are. And I, it was interesting, I was talking to a neuroscientist and I'm sort of going a bit tangential here, but he was saying because, you know, the human brain is really wired 
to hunter-gatherer, we respond to things that we see in front of us. We respond when something happens, we respond. And so even, you know, when COVID hit and amazing scientific work that was done around the globe, but we saw it happening right in front of our eyes and we were responding so quickly mm-hmm. and we needed to, right? But now we have an unstable climate system, but because we can't see it, that's not also triggering us to want to change our, change our behaviour and to make the changes that we need to make. I actually feel that the Gen Zs are actually growing up with it. And then a young person I interviewed said, you know, we're going to be the first generation to really be impacted by all of this. And we're also going to be the last generation who will be able to do something about it. And I thought, yeah, you're so right. Mm -hmm. But is it right of us to put all that responsibility on their shoulders? You know, I think we, we have to uh, support and do what we can now and do it quickly. Yes, absolutely, Liz. And I think that's a really powerful message to end our chat on and your point and that the world adapted once COVID hit because it was right in front of them. So we have proven that we can do it. So is there one final message that you'd like to leave our listeners with today or? Oh, my goodness. I am a very positive and hopeful person. I think when we create awareness and education about what's going on, that can drive action. And without action, we don't have hope. And so I really feel that we need to ask ourselves every day, why don't we talk about it? whether we're having coffee with friends or we're at work or whatever it is that we're doing, my end position is talk about it. Bring it to the table all the time because when we do that, the voice of everybody becomes louder. And when we've seen in in history the suffragettes, the falling of the Berlin Wall, apartheid, all those things I believe were possible because the voice of the people became loud enough that policymakers and government listened to them and we made change. And so I'm just saying, come on, everyone, when we talk about this and we get the sound loud enough together, we will actually bring the change we need to make sure that the generations to come look back and say, great job, you guys, you did it. Yeah. That's my point. Yeah. <laughs> Love it, Liz. Thank you so much. And you've shared some incredible um, pragmatic tips that people can do and I think you've really provided some really strong insight into what's happening, why we need to act now, you know, different messages to what I've heard and I love how you communicate it in a way that people can understand it and that it matters and just Thank you for doing what you do. And my hope out of this interview today is that everyone who listens to this shares it with at least three people so we can really get this message out there and in people's ears and really continue the great work that Liz has done but get that communication, those conversations happening, like you say, and just make it something where we do agree to start with a behavioural change in the home and then extend it out worldwide pretty much. So 
Liz, thank you so much. Thank you, Julie.